Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 138, recorded on December 20th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's one of our final episodes of the year, and it is our annual look back at the major stories of 2019. And there was a trend that just bubbled up all year long, and that was big commercial cloud versus free software projects. We saw various approaches to this by the open source projects, changing licenses, and various attempts to essentially stop AWS and the other clouds to a lesser extent from taking that open source software, selling it as a service, and not contributing back to the original project. What we have been witnessing, and likely will continue to witness for some time, is a conflict between the letter of the license and the spirit of the license. And the open source projects kept making adjustments to try to make the two line up a little bit more. But each adjustment comes with a reaction. Well, reactions like removing MongoDB from quite a few distributions because they changed to the server-side public license, which was almost an open source license, but not an OSI-approved open source license. There were some caveats in it, which meant that it couldn't be in distributions like Debian and Fedora. That really caught our attention. The other one was Chef going 100% open source and the extremely elaborate rationale they posted in doing so. Yeah, and we also saw it with Redis, with the company Redis Labs changing the license so that some of the modules were proprietary. And we actually saw Debian developers forking those bits of software to keep them going. Yeah, that was absolutely a standout moment. It really feels like this is going to come to a head in 2020 because These companies just don't really have a business model, the open source companies, anymore, thanks to the likes of AWS. And so something is going to have to change here. Yeah, the business model. They'll have to find a new one, and I think that's what they're exploring. It's not impossible, and uh, I won't say anything yet because this isn't our predictions episode, but there are adjustments Amazon could make on their end so they're not poisoning the well. Let's be honest here. These open source projects are making them a ton of money. There's some best interests at play here. They just have an opportunity they haven't recognized yet. Well, I hope you're right. I really hope that Amazon starts contributing to these projects. Even just a little bit of money would probably put this problem to bed, but I suppose we'll see. Meanwhile, one of the other tech giants, Google, has had a lot going on this year. There's so many areas when it comes to Google we could talk about. We just recently discussed Flutter and Fuchsia, Of course, Android is a major area of discussion. But the one that's on my mind, and it's just the timing of release, and uh, and also because I was playing Stadia right before we started recording, but Stadia. Stadia is on on the tip of my mind, and where is that going? It's It's the most unknown aspect of Google, I think, in the future. And it was sort of the crazy thing I didn't really see coming from them either. And they they actually did launch it in 2019, which... I also was a little skeptical of. So (laughs) just kind of question marks all over the place with Stadia. Yeah, they just about launched it. It got pretty poor reviews, although it seems to be improving now as we get towards the end of the year. And you've had a pretty good experience with your gaming, haven't you? Yeah, I really don't mind it. I, um, I got the founders thing, so I have the controller, and it has to be wired in when I'm on the desktop. But just before we started, I decided to pull the trigger, and I got Red Dead Redemption. And, um... The experience is really nice because after the transaction is complete, you can immediately play. No 20 gigabyte game to download. 
And no doubt you got it for a bargain price as well. <laughs> well, I mean, it was like $50, which that's the tricky thing with Stadia. That's part of why it's such an unknown. What are they going to do if they shut this thing down and people have put several hundred dollars or more into games on this platform? What are they going to do? Are they going to get each game maker to refund them? I don't think so, because I think it's the game makers that are setting the price. If Google had their way, I don't think it'd be 60 bucks for a game. Well, we'll see. I remain very skeptical about how widely this is going to be adopted and whether Google's going to kill it. But I think it'll probably make it through 2020. We'll have to see. Android had a pretty strong year. Well, it did, but it was also a bit up and down. The antitrust suit that's happening in Europe was somewhat resolved with Google being forced into giving people a choice of what browser they run on Android. Right. But at the same time, we got Android 10, and we started to see some of the fruits of Project Treble pay off with several notable high-end devices shipping with Android 10 on day one of the release. Yeah, I was quite surprised about that at the time, but I'm really hoping we're going to see more and more of that as we go into next year and when Android 11 comes out. And Google has been trying to do that a lot more with things like Project Mainline. But don't confuse the name Project Mainline with a mainline kernel, which is something Google has been thinking about this year, but it feels a long way off. Yeah, that ironically might be one of their most pie-in-the-sky things they've talked about recently. Maybe more pie-in-the-sky than Stadia. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's really a bit of a dichotomy. Because look at Chromebooks. All new Chromebooks got Linux apps. And there was even a whole range of Chromebooks that just were gifted an extra year of support. Really solid Android year, solid Chromebook year. Google services, really reliable. At the same time, they didn't take over the world. There's still plenty of good alternatives. In fact, I would argue there's more alternatives to Google services than ever, and they're better than ever. I thought at this time last year, we would be even more entrenched into Google. We would be even more locked in. I, I, I do not feel like that's the case. I have lots of options at the end of 2019. Google had a great year, but it didn't mean I had to have a bad year. Well, towards the end of the year, we saw a clear sign that Chromebooks are very likely to support FWAPD and the LVFS project. Joe, it's really been the year of LVFS. So you remember in August of 2018, Lenovo joined, and that was like a, whoa, whoa, everybody wake up, what's going on here? But since then, Phoenix, the BIOS maker, joined, HP joined, uh, tons of companies and, and smaller manufacturers that create appliances that we don't talk about as often also have been joining. It's seen... So much growth that I I almost worry about the sustainability of the project if it grows anymore. We have seen them join the Linux Foundation as well, so perhaps some support could come from there in 2020. I hope so, because as we've seen more companies get involved with this and more and more devices being supported, it feels like there needs to be a bit more organization there, a bit more admin, because just there is more admin being created just from the sheer number of moving parts. I've said it before, but I just really think it's a very vital project. And here's an interesting way to look at it. Imagine if we didn't have LVFS and somebody came to you and said, how do you do firmware updates in Linux? And our answer still was, well, you can reboot into Windows or uh, sometimes free DOS or every now and then a vendor puts a recovery environment that you can load into. And some BIOSes, you can just do it now. There's like a little updater in there. You just put a little thumb drive in there and you go in there and you select my BIOS. What's my BIOS? It's that menu you go into in your system posts. What's a post? Yeah, can you imagine this conversation? And with LVFS, it's 
Yeah, you'll just get an update notification if you're using XYZ desktop. And it's just right there automatically. It's it's one of those, you can't believe we wouldn't have something like this kind of features now. So I'd really love to see it just get completely solid, get backing from from everybody. I'd love to, I'd love to see Husey get a whole staff. Give him a staff. You know what? Give him give him a million bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, now that I'm writing IBM's checks. Yeah. Well, you have to wonder how much money Microsoft has been spending on open source this year. I would imagine a little bit more than a million dollars. Oh, Microsoft. I bet we just triggered some people in the audience. <laughs> Here we are, and people are still struggling how to understand Microsoft. But we have witnessed a transformation of a company. I don't think that uh, for a minute Microsoft is uh, in free software for the morality or ideals of it. I think they figured out how to monetize a business around development for the web and other services using open source. And um, as a result, we've benefited from it. And nothing could be a clearer signal of that. Nothing could be more of a lightning rod to indicate their commitment than when they open-sourced Windows Calculator. It was a real watershed moment, wasn't it? Watershed, Joe. It it shifted the industry, really uh, moved the needle, and um, disrupted everything we know about open-source. <laughs> yeah, especially open-source calculators. Yeah. Actually, though, you know, at the same time, didn't see it coming. It was actually legitimately surprising and adorable. Yeah, and we very quickly saw some pull requests improving it, which is <laughs> I know <laughs> quite something. But for me, it was announcing WSL two and the Windows terminal, and and even releasing Edge, their new browser for Linux, which hasn't happened yet, but has been announced. And Teams, and Teams, which they've billed as the first Office three sixty five app coming to Linux. And I've tried to reserve judgment on a lot of this, especially with my background with Microsoft. Um, but I've talked to more and more developers that are working with Microsoft in some capacity or, or another, and they consistently tell me that Microsoft is responsive and listens and replies to their emails and answers their questions and cooperates, which is really all you can ask for from an open source participant. If a company is going to participate in open source, it kind of matters that they respond to pull requests. It kind of matters that they answer your questions. And these developers are telling me they're doing that. So you could you can still sit here and you can wonder why and you can question their morals and you can even label us as idiots for even talking about Microsoft in even the slightest positive tone. But at the end of the day, it's clear they're motivated to make this work. Will it always be this way? Who knows? But is it this way today? Yes. Is it likely to be this way for the foreseeable future? I think so. But do you think that the history and the members of the community who still remember that history strongly are going to be a problem for them? Because as you said, every time we talk about Microsoft, if we're not incredibly negative about them, we get a lot of backlash. And you see it. It's not just us talking about it. Everywhere they're mentioned, there's a certain portion of the community who just will never forgive them for the things that they've done in the past. But do you think that they're not really interested in that segment of the community and they're just forging ahead and getting new developers and new people into open source and driving them towards Azure? Seems like that's it, huh? I think they see the market potential ahead of them 
for people that are developing services for the cloud. And uh, it's a ginormous field for decades to come. <laughs> so, you know, if a few folks from the 90s can't get over uh, the fact that they won the desktop, which, raising my hand right here, I was one of them, I think uh, Microsoft will be okay with that. Well, just to appease the people who will be annoyed at us talking about them, I did put M dollar sign in the document that we're looking at. You totally did. And I wasn't going to out you either. I thought that was just going to be our private little joke. Because, you know, both of us usually kind of roll our eyes when we see that. But yet, when we do it, it's funny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, a company who Microsoft have been pretty cozy with over the last year or so is Canonical. Yeah. And they've had a pretty good year. Seems so. It seems so. And and that coziness actually seems like it's uh, ramped up a little bit too as they each find uh, business opportunities to do so. But Canonical themselves had a strong year. Really good releases and um, some good partnerships. And they've pushed the edge in a few areas with the 1910 release, which I think a lot of us can appreciate. But even that 1904 release was really solid. If only so you had the excuse to play your Disco Duck song. <laughs> yeah, I did love that Disco Duck opportunity. Ah, once in a lifetime, that one. Yeah, it's funny, is this was the beginning, or maybe midway point, of a narrative about GNOME Shell. Memory enhancements, CPU optimization, animation tweaks that, that make it faster. All of these things were combining to make it a great desktop experience, which turned out to be even more so in 1910. But that's where we really saw a lot of these land initially was in Disco Dingo, as well as uh, support for the option to install NVIDIA graphics at installation time, which was nice for some of us. It wasn't all good, though. There was a bit of a controversy over the 32-bit x86 packages, which happened over a weekend, if I recall correctly. Oh, yes, the uh, the apocalypse of 32-bit uh, support. Right. And and remember how that Valve developer took to Twitter and got super upset and said, that, oh, well, I'm not making Steam for Ubuntu anymore. <laughs> yeah, because at first, Canonical said they were going to completely drop i386 support. But then after the backlash... They kind of backed down on it, and now they're saying that they're going to support a few key libraries and binaries to make things like Wine and Steam work. Interestingly enough, after this compromise decision was made, even in the last week or so, there has been increased conversation upstream in the kernel and other packages about 32-bit support. Because here's the situation. And this is not from me. This is from these developers. Of course, I'm kind of summarizing, but... My interpretation of it is they can make these things build for 32-bit, but people are not fixing, people are not patching, and people are not testing if they are getting fixed and patched at all for a lot of 32-bit code. So now outside of the Ubuntu project, there is more and more pressure building on maintaining 32-bit and, and making that call, making that break. Well, it's perfectly understandable why that pressure is growing. I specifically put some 32-bit hardware to the test this year. And honestly, it's just useless at this point. There's, I can't see any justification for using 32-bit x86 anymore. Wow. Wow. I mean, if that's coming from XFCE Joe. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Considering that you have these ARM boards now, if you want something to run as a server that's relatively low power. It just doesn't make sense to use old 32-bit x86 anymore. Yeah, there's likely a lot more testing on that ARM code. Well, yeah, exactly. 
Canonical also saw their director of engineering for the Ubuntu desktop, Will Cook, step down, and Martin Wimpress stepping into that position as well as expanding it to include several other areas. I think that Will really went out on a high with the Ubuntu 19.10 release. He's very keen to say that it's a team effort, but that was a great interim release. And now Wimpress has got to deal with this 2004, which is a huge release for Canonical, no matter which way you look at it. It's going to be supported for 10 years. Him and his team have to get this right, which I'm sure they will because they're building on 1904 and 1910, which were both solid. So I have have full confidence in him. And coming in just towards the very end of the year, Ubuntu Pro launched on the AWS Marketplace. And I mentioned this because wouldn't it be interesting in 2020 if this expanded into other providers and maybe even on-premises? I think that's pretty likely. I don't think that needs to go in the prediction show somehow. But something that could have gone in the prediction show is canonical IPOing, which I'd threatened on previous episodes to put in, but I'm not going to. So I'll, I'll say it now. I think that... 2020 is going to be the year that they're going to announce that. It probably won't happen because it takes a lot of time to get it all together, but it feels like the ducks are in a row and they're getting more and more so, and we're heading towards that point where it's going to happen. I guess I have to take the opposite side of that bet. I'll take that opposite side and I'll say no IPO. They may announce funding, but no IPO. You might be right because these things do take a lot of time. Yeah, I don't know though. It feels like we've been building up to it for the last two years. Yeah, but that kind of business stuff takes a, a long time, doesn't it? True, true. Well, I'm taking the other side because there's really only two sides to that bet. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the third possibility that someone could buy them. True. But then what would Mark do with all his free time? I don't think so. I think he's in it to win it. Maybe. Maybe. It also has been very interesting to watch Red Hat this year. I had my first opportunity to go to a Red Hat Summit, and it happened to be the Red Hat Summit where RHEL 8 was released. Which has been a very well-received release, and quite the change from RHEL 7. It's almost like the whole industry has changed between 7 and 8, and they've really incorporated all those changes into it. Yeah, that's it. It was a very palpable sensation at Red Hat Summit that this release really was a recognition of how much had changed since the last rail. And they really were trying to message that very clearly. And this was all happening in the shadow of the IBM acquisition that hadn't completely closed yet. And with them nearly reaching the $3 billion revenue mark, which they ended up actually hitting later in the year. Yeah. And what was interesting about that $3 billion is how small that was compared with IBM. Of course, with that IBM acquisition, We weren't really sure what the state of CentOS was. There was a strange kind of weird delay for CentOS 8. And then we woke up one morning, and not only had CentOS 8 landed, but a new beast had been released. Yeah, CentOS Stream, the rolling version of CentOS, which suddenly explained why there was a delay to releasing CentOS 8 in the first place. People were really starting to scratch their heads wondering, where it was. And then suddenly 8 and Stream come along and we're like, ah, that's why there was a delay. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I haven't played with it a bunch, just a little bit, but it does have a lot of potential to get changes upstreamed into RHEL in a much more direct kind of pipeline, uh, which I'll be digging into more in 2020. We also saw Fedora 31 ship, which included a very polished and well-performing version of Gnome Shell. Yeah, and that was off the back of Fedora 30, which was also released. Two very solid releases. Not massively exciting, but 
I suppose that's kind of not what you want from Fedora. You want just stability and something that's just going to work for you. Nice and steady improvements. Yeah, that that is a nice that is the nice Fedora recipe. I also feel like just while we're talking about distros, I kind of need to give an honorable mention to both Manjaro and PopOS, which saw a lot of coverage in the YouTube space. And Manjaro had a deal cut with the free office folks. Like there's a new kind of leveling up for them with their business formation as well. So it's been a good year for those distributions. And Elementary OS saw a series of steady, faster releases for their distribution. So more features came to the later releases than typically we saw in the past. And of course, we saw the end of Antigos this year, but then rising from the ashes of it was Endeavor OS, which I've been really impressed with. And I think is now my go-to for installing Arch because it's just so easy and simple. And it's got a great XFCE implementation, which is always going to keep me happy. And it's really been something for me personally to watch the explosion of community around the Home Assistant project, the home automation software I use. It's now in the top 10 on GitHub of all projects. And the community has just exponentially grown this year. It's really been neat to see the project hit its stride and watch the maintainers still interact with the community, do live streams, ask questions, see them grow. They recently hired another member. Um, It's been a heck of a year for the Home Assistant project. But there is one category that's a bit absent, and that's mobile. We don't really have a massive update. We have a lot of really solid progress, and we're very close to breaking to what I would call big updates, (laughs) like shipping hardware and whatnot. But we're not quite there, are we? We're not really there. We, we did see UbiPorts finally create their foundation and gain some legitimacy there and finally get their business sorted out. And we've seen really good improvements with Postmarket OS and the Pine Phone, which is almost shipping, and the prototypes and dev kits for that are, are running pretty solidly, can make phone calls. But we're just not quite there. It feels like 2020 could be a year that we see some serious progress on that front. I think that what's important is to understand that it's very unlikely that a proper GNU slash Linux phone is going to take on Android and iOS. But I think that we will see in 2020 a big niche being filled there. And it only takes a fraction of the whole market to make it worthwhile. A few hundred thousand people running a GNU slash Linux phone it's still pretty cool. Yeah, look at the small board computer market. It's a sustainable market for hobbyists and and people that are learning and developing. So I, I absolutely could see a Linux phone market serving a similar niche to that. I There's so many categories that we could talk about in an episode like this that this could be a four-part series. It could be a four-hour episode. But I wouldn't mind including just one honorable mention for myself. I am so freaking satisfied with Linux gaming between Proton, native ports, Stadia. I'm good to go. There's literally not a game I can't play right now. I don't play all the games, but every time I've gone to play any single game that has crossed my fancy, I've been able to play it in 2019. That's like 
getting email from an exchange server level cool kind of stuff for me. That that was the untapped territory. I can fire up Star Trek Online anytime I want on Linux or Truck Simulator. Yes, Truck Simulator. <laughs> it really, it's the whole range, Joe. You need to get Euro Truck Simulator and drive around to London, see how you like driving on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> I think it would drive me crazy. I'd crash my RV next time I took it out on the road. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like I said, we could go on forever, and we have to wrap up because next week it is our predictions episode. So go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. We'll be back next week. I am at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Resington. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next year. See you later. Bye.